This morning we're talking about the matter of multiplication. And let me ask you a few questions as it relates to this subject, just to get you thinking in particular categories. Statistically speaking, for a denomination to break even with the number of churches that most denominations lose every year, what percentage do you think of church plants have to happen annually in order for that denomination to break even, to grow, or to thrive? Statistically speaking, there's 100 churches within a denomination. They need to plant at least three healthy churches a year or that denomination begins to decline. 5% would have it grow and 10% would cause it to thrive. Second question, at what age in a church's life cycle do most churches begin to plateau? And for that matter, at what age do most churches begin to decline? The number for plateauing is 15 years, and the number where they begin to decline, historically speaking, is 35 years. Third question, what are the main reasons that established churches stop growing? You know, it's mostly due to the fact that established churches can tend to turn inward. They can become cul-de-sacs rather than conduits of God's grace. New churches, new congregations, have to look outside of themselves in order to thrive and even survive. And so newer congregations tend, because of their posture, to look outside. Finally, the church planting arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, which does all sorts of statistical and national studies, has compared new churches and established churches in terms of number of baptisms per 100 members. Which do you think had more annually, new churches or established churches? The answer is new churches. Established churches had 3.4 baptisms per 100, while new, established churches, yes, had baptisms of 3.4 per 100, while new churches had 11.7 per 100 members. Now why is all of that important? Here's why. Without multiplication, the church will decline. Without multiplication, this church will decline. Without multiplication in your life, you will decline. Because God has designed disciples to make disciples. Tim Keller says this, the vigorous continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for the numerical growth of the body of Christ in a city, and secondly, the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches in a city. Nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, or church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. So the launching then of new congregations is the most effective way to both reach the city and secondly, create an ongoing life cycle of renewal in an established church. And that's one of the reasons that we started the Next Door Mission, why we launched 200 people in 2015 to the Fishers campus, and now why today, at the end of our service, we're going to be commissioning the 140-so folks who are launching the Castleton congregation beginning next Sunday. 
But what you need to know is the Next Door mission was never just about launching new congregations. It was also about helping existing congregations like North Indy and also like Fishers and like Castleton in the future to remain healthy and vibrant. Because in the process of multiplying, it causes you to ask some very important questions about how do we raise up future leaders, how do we create a disciple-making culture, and what is our strategy for all of this to happen? So this morning, we're concluding this series on following Jesus together. We've explored what it means to belong. We've explored what it means to grow. And now today, we're talking about multiply. And I must tell you that when I think of those three words, I think that most of us understand what we mean by grow. We talked about being Christ-like and what it means to have the image of Christ. We understand that at one level. That's kind of churches like that, and you understand it. But belong, I think fewer people understand that than grow. And I think even fewer people understand what it means to multiply. And and I would argue, as it relates to College Park church culture, I think we as a church historically know what it means to grow, and I think we're growing in our understanding of what it means to belong. I think multiply is a really important growth point for us as we think about what it means for us to reach our city, what it means for us to make disciples, and what it means for us as a church to multiply ourselves for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of reaching the world. Here's the crux of what I'm saying this morning, and it's this, that the Christian life requires multiplication. It requires the intentional spiritual replication of those who have seen the beauty of Christ, who are disciples themselves, and then they they make disciples. They're disciples who make disciples. So this morning what I wanna do is I wanna walk you through Matthew 28. I'm sure it's a familiar passage for many of us, It's traditionally called the Great Commission. In fact, this message, significant parts of it, I have talked about before. This is not going to be anything new. Our vision for multiplication hasn't changed in the last two years. And yet, at the same time, this is an important moment for us to think, so what does multiplication mean? What does it mean as a church? What does it mean individually? What does it mean programmatically? What do we mean by multiplication? So I want to give you a vision for what this means. So I'm going to walk you through who's called to multiply. Secondly, what are the basics of multiplication? And then what should multiplication look like when we think about how we actually do it? So first, who is called to multiply? What I love about Matthew 28 is its honesty and the ordinary nature of the people who are called to be a part of this mission. In verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So we have eleven disciples, not twelve, because Judas was the twelfth, took his life after the betrayal of Jesus. They go to Galilee, which was the home for many of them. It became then the starting point of Jesus' ministry of reaching the Gentiles. Jesus tells them to go to a mountain. Mountains in the Old and New Testament were places where... um, Significant moments happened in the life of God's people. Think Mount Sinai, think Mount Carmel with Elijah. So this setting is a fitting place for what follows. Verse 17 then tells us a little bit about them. So here's the 11 disciples. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's there in this glorified body, and it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. That makes sense. And then it says this, but some doubted. By the way, this is one of the reasons that I believe in the truthfulness of the Bible. If you're going to make up a story to try and convince people that something is true when it isn't, 
you just varnish the story so that you present the best side of it so there's no negative or there's no weakness in the people who are its main characters. You, you make them like heroes. But this tells us honestly that they worshiped him and some doubted because that's what happened. It's true. He's alive, they worshiped him, and yet some were filled with doubt. We have these disciples who come from all walks of life. They're weak, they're struggling, they're still in process. Even though Jesus is standing right there, they still are doubting. These were ordinary men. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. There's likely at least two or three others of the disciples were also fishermen or tradesmen as well. Matthew has a past. He's a converted tax collector. Simon. Simon's an insurrectionist. Like, he wants to over, he wanted to overthrow Rome and use military force in order to do that. These people had not come, these men had not come from the halls of power. They were not part of the highly educated or the spiritual class. In fact, so much so that in the book of Acts chapter four, when John and Peter are hurled before the Sanhedrin and they are charged for preaching in Jesus' name, the religious leaders are astonished at their answers because they were, it says, uneducated and common men. Now, I trust that that encourages you. The reality is, is that God has entrusted the mission to reach the world to ordinary people. And on that mountain are 11 men who Jesus gives this mission, and yet they are believers and doubters. They're adoring and wondering people. They're trusting and they're questioning. And one commentator says, is it not refreshing that Matthew admits this? I would say yes. Because you may be here this morning and in, the, in a moment of worship you could absolutely believe that Jesus has no rival, he has no equal, and then your mind just like that can struggle with doubts and fears. Or you could come away from a Sunday morning worship gathering so confident in God's ability and then have a great opportunity to share Christ this next week and completely blow it. And the reality is that struggle, that tension, those are the people that God uses to accomplish his mission. In fact, so much so that historians tell us that Christianity began with about a 1,000 people in the first century, and by the fourth century, it was upwards of 25 to 30 million people. Spread like wildfire, why? Because ordinary people sent out to carry the mission of God. And do you know what an effect those 11 men had on the world? According to two first century historians, here's what the disciples did after the story in Acts and after this moment in Matthew 28. Andrew, the brother of Peter, preached the gospel in modern day Georgia and in the Black Sea region. Bartholomew, or also called Nathaniel, went to India after bringing the gospel to modern day Turkey and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan. Peter preached the gospel through Turkey and was probably instrumental in starting the church at Rome. Matthew not only published the gospel that bears his name, but he brought the gospel to Iran, especially to the region called Parthia. 
Thaddeus was a missionary to Edessa and the surrounding areas of Turkey and Syria and Iraq. Philip was a missionary to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and then goes to eastern Turkey where he preaches the gospel. Thomas, doubting Thomas, preaches the gospel to people in modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. And then you have men like Matthias, Simon, the zealot, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Zebedee. They were all involved in the ministry of Jerusalem. John was banished to the island of Patmos, writes the gospel that bears his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. They're sent all over the world, but it doesn't stop there. Take the book of Acts and the ministry of the apostle Paul. You'll see that Paul multiplies himself. In fact, I just finished a marvelous book called The Mentoring Church, and the author, Phil Newton, pieces together the story of Acts and also some things regarding church history to give you sort of this constellation of people who are around the apostle Paul and the way in which their lives were impacted by him. Or they impacted him. Take, for instance, Barnabas, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's the first one to go and to validate the work of God in Paul's life. And he's sent to Antioch to see what God is doing there among the Greek and Jewish people. Eventually, Barnabas is sent out of the church in Antioch with Paul for their first missionary journey. Paul had this wide array of people who could trace their discipleship back to him. Among them was Silas and John Mark and Timothy and Titus. Those are the the well-known ones, but there's more. There's a man named Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius that were a part of his ministry. Tychius was sent to Ephesus and Colossae. He replaced Timothy there. And then we have a man named Trophimus, likely a part of Paul's church planting effort on the island of Crete. If you take all the names mentioned in Paul's epistles, it's upwards of 40 different people whom he knew or had relationship with who in one level or another he was investing his life in. These are the constella- this is the constellation of people that were around the Apostle Paul. And the point of all of this is simply this, that God calls every single one of us to the task of making disciples, and that multiplying effect is incredibly powerful, although at first it seems like a very small impact. What happens is those people who end up making disciples and making disciples and making disciples, there's an exponential effect of it. So I'm sure that you have that same thing in your life I do in mine, that there's people that poured their life into me, that placed me in a spot for me to even be here in this moment and say these things to all of you. The multiplying effect of their life in my life is now something that I'm able to impart and to be able to give to you. And the same thing is true for you, that the multiplying effect of the children who are in your home the multiplying effect of the people who are in your small group, the multiplying effect of those who are in your sphere of influence is the single most impactful thing that you can do for the work of the ministry. Investing in people, pouring into their lives as they invest in others and they pour in others has a multiplying effect. And when Jesus brings these 11 disciples to that mountain and gives them this mission, that mission is not just for them. That mission is essentially the mission of the church, that God is on a mission to reach the world. And the way that he does that is to use people who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. So multiplication is not an optional part of the calling of the Christian life. It is central to the mission of God, and it's how the church went from 1,000 to 35 million in 400 years. So what are the basics of multiplication? That's who is he calling? He's calling all of us. What are the basics? Well, let's look at verses 18 to 20. 
Many of you have heard this text used in regards to foreign missions, and it certainly applies to that, but here's the thing. It applies to foreign missions, which is merely the global expression of the mission of the church, which is to multiply. It has been throughout my life increasingly frustrating to me that missionaries understand about equipping and training and multiplying and then going and doing that again, and yet on the state side of the equation or the home church equation, often we begin to think about multiplying, that that's something that other people do, and what happens is the church begins to grow inward and the church begins to be more about Our needs, our desires, our understanding, it becomes about us, and it happens so easily, so quickly, and my guess is that's where some of you are. You've come to church this morning, and all you can think about is what you like and your needs and your issues, and while your needs and your issues are important, they are not the ultimate definer of ministry. The calling is for us to multiply ourselves. So what is, how does this happen and what are some of the basics as it relates to this? Well, notice what Jesus does first. There's, there's six things here. First, this multiplication ministry is rooted in the authority of Jesus. I love this. Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why does he start there? Well, one, authority runs all throughout the book of Matthew Authority is a major theme. It's it's what the people see that Jesus has that the spiritual leaders don't. It's what Jesus has in order to allow him to forgive and to heal people in chapter 9 and verse 6. Authority is what he gives to the disciples in chapter 10 and verse 1. For Matthew, the authority of Jesus is what it means for him to be Lord. That the Great Commission is rooted in who Jesus is. In other words, we just sang a phenomenal song, Worthy is Your Name. Let me ask you, is that just about worship? Is that just about who Jesus is? Is that just about collectively us saying that? Or does that have anything to do with multiplication? I would argue it has everything to do with multiplication. That a people who understand that worthy is his name are a people who say that and then they go out and they say it. A people who embrace that collectively and corporately and then magnify that name as they go and they spread around the world. It, it, it gives them confidence that all authority has been given to me. So just yesterday I'm in a shop buying a piece of technology for my wife, having a great conversation with an extremely talented young uh, salesman. We were talking about life, and because of how long it took, I was there for you know, quite a while developing a relationship with him, and I'm going through the conversation. We talked about everything, schooling and technology, et cetera, et cetera, and I thought, I gotta go there. And I know what's gonna happen. The minute I kinda go here, it's gonna change the dynamic. We're having a great time, and it might not be so great after I ask this question. And then I thought, you know what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. I am not here to buy a cell phone. I mean, I'm, I'm there to buy a cell phone, but I'm not there to buy a cell phone. You know what I mean? I'm there, and so to be able to simply ask a question, hey, do you have any religious beliefs? Conversation turned. I heard the standard line, you know, of hey, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. I get that, makes sense at one level, and just had a brief conversation, The point of that is not where the conversation went or the content of it, the point is this, that what helps us to move across the line to do things that we would not be normally inclined to do is this kind of command, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's king, he's Lord, the question we need to think about, if multiplication is the calling, then is his name really worthy or not? 
Is it worthy to do things that are uncomfortable? Is it worthy enough for us to, 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 to think about how we live our lives in a way that's different from just simply being concerned about our own needs and our own desires? So it's rooted in the authority of Jesus. Here's the second thing, that it is a movement. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. So he tells them to go. The mission of Jesus is a movement which he envisions involving them not staying on the mountain. Imagine what would have happened if the disciples said, well, this is awesome. Hey, we've been hanging out for three years together. Now we have this body of teaching. We know who Jesus is. How about we just build a house here and we'll call it the disciples' place. And we'll have people come up to the mountain and they can hear from us and we can eat together, have fellowship together. Let's just hang out here on the mountain. Like that's what we will do. And the reality is, thank God that didn't happen because we probably wouldn't have heard the gospel had they stayed on that mountain. Jesus tells them to go, go, go. You see, part of the Part of the the mode by which God reaches the world is by the regular deployment of his God's people. The idea is that God's people gather, but they gather so that they then can scatter. Their central ministry then involves caring for one another and loving on one another, but it also involves them going. It means that we, we, we hold one another loosely as we pour into one another's lives because we know that the mission is to go. So we got some folks that we're gonna commission today to Castleton, and some of you are saying goodbye to folks who've been a part of worshiping with us for um, a number of years, and how do, you, how do you justify those folks leaving? Well, because them leaving is a part of the mission of God. It's the purpose, in the same way that, that, that parenting involves raising children so they can go. I'm convincing myself a lot these days that that's, that's the plan, right? Come home to a quiet house and everything's different and I'm telling myself, this is the plan, this is the plan, this is good, this is good. And in the back of my mind I'm going, this is not good, this is not good, this is good, this is good. I've got this kind of parental schizophrenic thing kind of going on in my head. I'm reminding myself, no, I don't want them living in my basement forever. This is good, this is, this is good. And so when we say goodbye to people we love, it's good because it's the mission of God that, that the church was not supposed to be just this gathering where we, we wrap our arms around one another and say, hey, we know one another and like one another. Let's just make it us four and no more, okay? We'll write songs together, we'll eat food together. Let's just hang out and it'll just be us, 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 us. No, the mission of God is go, gather, encourage, and go. Come, gather, encourage, and go. You are our greatest way to reach the city of Indianapolis by what happens Monday through Saturday than necessarily what happens inside this room on Sunday. The effective way to reach this city is by placing people all over our community having conversations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Multiplication is not just the church's responsibility, it is all of our responsibility. Third, it's a movement, its goal is disciple making. Go therefore and make disciples. It's interesting to say, to note here, that Jesus doesn't use words like convert or preach or win. No, he uses a word that's more organic, more personal, that his disciples are to go and make disciples. It means that Jesus discipled them, and now they're to go and do what Jesus did to them and do that to others. 
What would have happened if they would have stopped? What would have happened if they would have closed their mouths? What would have happened if they would have taken all of that deposit and just kind of hoarded it? The reality is, is that this mission of going is so that they could intentionally, spiritually replicate. For those of you who are headed to Castleton, let me give you a pastoral word of caution. I trust that you've signed up to go to Castleton because you believe you're gonna better be able to reach that section of the city by going to that congregation, not just because it's closer, more convenient, or smaller, or more organic. All of those things might be good, but if that doesn't result in more multiplication, you've just traded issues, and you've not really fulfilled the mission that God has for you as a people. And if in a few years from now, you're resistant to multiplying and sending people away and say, we can't send people away, we can't afford it, it's too expensive, it might mess up our plans, or we don't have enough teachers, et cetera, et cetera, just remember that there were people at North Indy who had to deal with those same battles and are sending you, and now you get the opportunity to do the same. And if you short that process, you end up creating a cul-de-sac when God intended to create a conduit. That's not just true for the folks at Castleton, that's true for all of us who are gonna remain at North Indy. It is that we're constantly thinking about what does it mean to go? What does it mean to multiply? Who are the people in my sphere of influence who I've been called to intentionally make disciples of those people? How am I going to spiritually replicate myself? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Here's the fourth thing that disciple making involves evangelism and obedience-oriented instruction. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's an evangelistic sense. And then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's always two aspects of this mission, which involves an evangelistic mission and a obedience teaching mission. But question, where do established churches tip over time? Towards evangelism or towards obedience instruction? They tip towards the obedience instruction. Remember when you first came to Christ, you were hot after evangelism, and then something happens. You learn because of sort of the culture around you with these other believers that being excited about sharing your faith wasn't something that should continue beyond year two or three. That's not the vision of what we have here in the Great Commission. The scope of the mission is for us to take this message of evangelism and discipleship and to proclaim it with passion. Fifth, the aim is to saturate the world. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The idea is that God's mission on earth is no longer to be limited to Jews or the city of Jerusalem, but instead those, that Jerusalem city now becomes a base camp for the deployment of being able to reach people. And those who were in Antioch were better able to reach Asia and Asia Minor, and those in Greece were able to reach those in that region and in Rome to be able to reach into the Roman Empire. And as the gospel expanded, it expanded because they were committed to making disciples everywhere and everywhere they went to make disciples. But here's my question, is that, is that your mission? Do you see that as your mission? Like, we're to make disciples everywhere, but everywhere we are to make disciples. So here's the question, where has God placed you? Who's in your sphere of influence? What, who has God brought across your path? The aim is to saturate the world. And then finally, the promise of personal 
of the personal presence of Jesus, Jesus says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why does Jesus make this promise? Here's why, because multiplication involves risk. Whenever you multiply, whenever you launch, there's risk, there's huge risk. There's risk as a parent. You launch your kids and you're like, I can't fix those things anymore. Now I just gotta throw ideas over the wall or wait for the phone call or take the body blow of this is hard, like your life's great and my life's hard, like this is all loss for me and all gain for you and yet that's what the mission of parenting is, that's what the mission of disciple making is, is that it involves risk. And listen, as we've sent out people to congregations, we've had conversations within ministries. I don't know if we can send any more people. I don't know if what's gonna happen financially, what's gonna happen programmatically, and in that risk, we come back to, hey, I'm not sure we can figure this out, but we do know this, the Lord's gonna be with us, he's promised. There's some of you who have never known that kind of risk. You've never known what it means to sit down across the table from someone and try and help them to become a follower of Jesus and they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to and suddenly now you're stuck. Like I gotta figure this out, like I don't know what to do and suddenly now you need to incorporate the promise that behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So discipleship is about intentional spiritual replication. That happens in a global context. It's supposed to happen everywhere. So then finally, what does multiplication actually look like? So I want you to see the value of what it means for a movement of intentional spiritual replication. That's what I mean by multiply. And by the way, this assumes that you have something to replicate. You you may be here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you might wonder, why so much talk about disciple making? Here's why, because when When we understand, when Christians understand the beautiful message of the gospel, that we're sinners and we have no hope in ourselves and that Jesus died for our sins and that by receiving him, we not only can be forgiven, but God actually can fix what's wrong with our hearts. And when you understand the beauty of what that gospel does, there is a compelling urge to share that good news with other people. And in sharing that good news, it becomes infectious in their life and they begin to share it with other people. That is the mission of God. It's rooted in the gospel. So if you're here today and you don't yet know Christ, I would love for you to make that step and to become a follower of Jesus, not so you can make disciples, but so that you could be a disciple, understand who he is, and stop running and tearing apart the fabric of your own life. So for those of you who are disciples of Jesus, what exactly is multiplication and discipleship? Well, let me give you two different lanes to think through. Discipleship is both corporate and it's personal. By corporate, I mean it's what we do together. So even right now, this is a discipleship moment. I am discipling you as we sing together. We're discipling one another. The flow of our service, the the intentional focus of what we're trying to do is all relates to discipleship and there's a corporate element that God uses by the Spirit, the official large gathering of the church for the purpose of discipleship. But that's not all that there is. The large gathering is not enough. If this is all that discipleship is, it's not going to be adequate. What discipleship also requires is the personal and individual orientation where we focus on how do we help every person be mature. 
So that means one-on-one conversations, how we care for one another, interactions. It means that there is no way as a church we're going to accomplish our multiplication vision if you're not involved personally. And I don't mean that programmatically. I mean that you take conversations at Starbucks and you have a normal conversation, but you also talk about spiritual things. And in the context of your small group, that you're not just meeting to gather and enjoy fellowship and spending time with one another, but you're really helping each other to be able to grow into the likeness and image of Christ. And that happens one conversation at a time. It's both corporate and personal. Secondly, it's both structural and relational. So the lifeblood of discipleship is relationships, but those happen in the context of structures that are really good. So therefore, we have a small group ministry. We have adult big groups. This morning when we're all done, there's tables that you can go to to figure out how do I get connected, how do I belong, how do I grow, how do I actually get involved in the multiplication efforts with our church. There's clipboards with names that you can put your name on there and you can be part of a program, but that program is really good, but the program just sets the table for then you to have the discipleship conversations that happen. The programs don't in and of themselves create discipleship, What they do is they create the the lanes, the boundaries, the means for that discipleship to take place. It means also taking the relational time to be able to ask somebody, not just the question, how are you doing at one level, but get below the surface. How, How is your soul and what does it really mean to care for one another and love for one another? So ask yourself, like this moment in your week, next week, what could be different about that moment or event because of your mission as a disciple maker? So disciple making and multiplication requires the intentional intersection of relationships with gospel purposes. You could do that after this service and just linger longer. Be able to find someone and just say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? Next, discipleship is also formal and informal. It could be formal like a a one-on-one official discipleship relationship or having a mentor, and I would commend those sort of relationships with you or to you, or perhaps you you would say, hey, I need to, to find someone that I can disciple. But it also could be as informal as driving the car with your teenager and just having conversations about spiritual oriented things. Or while you're on a Three-mile run with someone just talking about what you're reading in the Word, in the midst of your gasps for air. (laughs) Or maybe it's after the service, you would stop and, and pray for someone who's struggling and hurting. And then finally, discipleship is both global and local. Making disciples is the fuel of global missions. The reason we have missions and the reasons we send missionaries is because there are people who have not heard the name of Jesus. And unless someone goes, they're not going to hear. Someone has to go. There is no plan B. But it's not just a missions calling, it's also a local church calling. Reaching all nations is the end game, but so is reaching your neighbor, your coworker, the barista at Starbucks. The guy at the gym, anyone who's in close proximity to where you live, they're in your world and you're the one who's supposed to reach them. That's your calling. You're the disciple maker. You're the one who God has sent. You're the one who's come down from the mountain. You're the one who's heard. Go therefore and make disciples. This is why God has placed you in your neighborhood. This is why he's put you in the job that you're in. This is is why he's allowed particular people to come into the orb of your life. 
And one of the definitions of whether or not a church is healthy is how, they are, how are they doing in regards to deploying people and multiplying. Do you know over the last 10 years, we've deployed over 23 couples or singles, so 23 mission units to head to the mission field, 23 groups of people. That's why we planted Nehemiah Bible Church with Corey Johnson, why we assisted Joseph Ray in helping to start a work with Soma Church downtown. To date, we've trained 11 residents, launched Dan Weller to Living Faith Church. Tim Whitney this morning is preaching his second message at Perry Hall Church in Baltimore, while we gave away Dustin Crow, commissioned Chris Beale, sent 200 of our finest people to Fishers, while we're releasing Eric Swanson, Luke Jones, and 170-so people to Castleton, and while we're releasing Luke Humphrey to go plant a church in Dubai. On my desk this weekend. On my desk this weekend was a handwritten long note from Luke Humphrey. This is his last Sunday together with us as a staff. Last Sunday as a staff member, he just recounted all the ways that the Lord had worked in his life. And it is hard to see people like him and his wife and family go. It's painful. All the investment, totally worth it, but it is hard. And yet, don't you think the disciples had some sad moments when they had to greet one another and hug one another and say, hey man, I'm, I'm going to Samaria. I'm going to Asia Minor. And although they'd been together for three years, although they'd seen miraculous things, although they had encountered Jesus face to face, they went all over the world. And because of that deployment, because of that multiplication, the gospel spread. And I want you to know that that mission, that calling, was not just for those 11 men on that mountain. That's my calling, that's your calling. And whether it's your children, or whether it's involved in our next generation's ministries, whether it's leading a small group, whether it's getting involved in youth ministry, whether it's something out in the community, or just taking a conversation with a person that you're meeting on a regular basis, all of us are called to multiply. That The Christian life is essentially about intentional spiritual replication. You grow, you mature, you put people around, you and then you send them. You don't gather and hoard and grab and say, hey, isn't this awesome? Just be us together. Let's sing Kumbaya for the next 30 years and we'll just enjoy this time together. You come over to my house, I'll come over to yours and we got deep roots together. The idea is this. Look, that's what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be for. At this moment, we, we grow our roots deep enough so that it hurts when we deploy, because our mission is not just about our needs, our desires, our relationship, our friends, our connections, our spiritual growth. It is not just about us. It is that we do this to deploy, because that was Jesus' mission in order to reach the world. And thank God those 11 men didn't build a little house on top of that mountain and say, us 11 and no more. They went all over the world. And today we are the forebearers of those who are carrying that torch of what it means to spread the gospel. Church, multiplication is that important. Without it, the church will decline. Without multiplication, hear me, this church will decline. Without it, your spiritual growth will decline. Without it, the gospel is not going to spread. Multiplication, intentional spiritual replication is what the church is called to do. It's what you're called to do. And my challenge to you is now you need to figure out where and who and when. Hopefully, I've helped you understand why. 
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you make us a people who understand the vision of what it means to go. Help us to hold one another loosely and help us to be the kind of people who get it about what it means to spread the gospel. Give us specific applications in all of our lives, even now, that you by your spirit could speak and help us to see what this means. God, pull us out of a myopic view of the Christian life and help us to see the mission of the church as multiplication. Help us to be disciples who make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.